0: Hello, everyone. This is your brief reminder that this is a re-upload of a conversation that was had a couple of years ago. Shouldn't affect the conversation at all, other than, you know, there are a few things that have happened that we aren't able to reference since then. And one quick spoiler warning for, like, the middle of Final Fantasy Tactics. Ira, throw something out in the middle there. Otherwise, should be good to go. Remember that uh, the next episode on your podcast app will come out uh, on the next weekday but if you can't wait to listen all of the episodes are available 50 more up through the end of final fantasy 7 on patreon.com ffweekly for just one dollar and if you're interested in more final fantasy talk more video game stuff my thoughts on comic book movies and star wars and professional wrestling and sports well you can head over to patreon.com slash dc productions Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman.
1: And I'm Ira Kreisman.
0: And on this episode, we will continue our conversation of the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy IV. We're
1: going to start by not doing a full recap of what we just did in the previous episode, because you can just listen to the previous episode. But we are going to look at it briefly through the lens of one of our big questions for this game, which is the bigger threat that is these characters all have their own stuff going on, but there's a bigger threat in Golbez and the kingdom of Baron. So we've seen that a few times. Um, maybe jump in with your own ideas here, Drew. But at the beginning, when Cain sort of pretends like he's going to take out Rydia and Cecil says no, and then it was sort of a test, and Cain's like, we need to get the other kingdoms together to ally with us and, and help take on Baron. We see it when Rydia gets on Edward's case. We kind of critiqued Rydia and Cecil for being overly mean to Edward and that he had just suffered this big trauma. But just because he suffered a big trauma doesn't mean there's not, again, this bigger threat of Baron trying to take all the crystals. We also see it uh, in some of the side characters. The King of Fabul, Yang's people, he doesn't really want to ally himself with Cecil because Cecil is a dark knight of Baron. But because Yang has been working with Cecil and the others, he, he testifies to the good nature of Cecil and what, the, what it is they're trying to do. So there are plenty of examples throughout of characters coming together against a larger threat in, in the form of Golbez and the Kingdom of Baron. And they don't even know yet about the Lunarians, they don't know about Zemus.
0: Right, that's the thing that's cool, is that the theme is established before it's driven home in its most dramatic possible fashion, which, as we've talked about, is akin to the White Walkers in Game of Thrones, or the aliens in any other alien movie, you know, today we celebrate our Independence Day, you know, but the, <laughs> nice the other choice. part of, of, of that speech that is oftentimes remembered is when he says, the Fourth of July will never be known as just an American holiday. And that's the heart of what we're getting at here, and I think a lot of what Final Fantasy IV is about is it can't just be your celebration. We really all do have to come together, and at first it seems like it's to stop the Kingdom of Baron, as you mentioned, from collecting all of the crystals, and therefore being able to wield ultimate power and ultimately becomes about, oh man, we're all at risk of being controlled and invaded by a much larger force
1: so when last we left our heroes we were at the top of mount ordeals tella the old sage who had forgotten a lot of his spells now remembers them all including meteor and tella becomes a uh, a powerhouse at this point it's pretty impressive but more prescient our understanding of cecil is that he has changed from dark knight to paladin he was dressed in all dark armor before black or, or perhaps very very dark gray or dark blue and a full face helmet to now he's in this blue and silver armor. He's got long, flowing blonde hair. His face is uncovered. You can see his pretty blue eyes. And so it's a change not just from dark to light, but also from faceless to, as we have coined before, (laughs) faceful, and from hiding behind his armor to celebrating himself as an individual and what it is he's going to try to accomplish by facing his fears and facing his darkness.
0: Yeah, it's also the final moment of, as you said, his transformation to being an an individual as opposed to an arm of the state, a member of the military, a servant. He is now someone who is charting his own course, making his own decisions, not obeying, but just deciding what it is he's going to do with his life. And so... Yeah, it's a really powerful moment. And I think something you mentioned, its this is backed up in a lot of ways. There are a lot of layers here. And this is one of the reasons why Final Fantasy IV is celebrated the way that it is. Because you mentioned Tella goes through a paradigm shift here as well. I think what all great fantasy art and other stories do this as well it doesn't have to just be done in this but I think it's just common in Lord of the Rings and Star Wars I've brought it up in Game of Thrones is when you become attached to these characters and big events happen your audience can experience that event through the eyes through the lens through the emotions of each of these different characters you know how this or that person's going to feel you know they're some of them are going to feel at odds and that's going to create an interesting attention for you the viewer the the video game player and that happens here in a myriad of ways it's not just a big moment in Cecil's life but it's the culmination of what we've known about Tella's story so far and it's also he is losing a part of himself here he's moving into this new aspect of his life which comes with all kinds of uncertainty but A certain amount of power as well so it really is a great moment and that it's got that many layers to it uh, i think just speaks to how awesome this game is
1: (laughs) i also think that's interesting because usually adult characters or characters who are an advanced age the change they usually experience is to die in the original star wars movie a new hope obi-wan kenobi you know he's made all the changes in life he's going to he is who he is now he doesn't have to he has no more character arcs. The thing that's going to change about him is Darth Vader is going to kill him, and he's going to become a ghost. So you usually don't see a big change like this in a character who doesn't, who's not going through his origin story, who doesn't have more things to learn. Now, Tella did have more things to learn because he had forgotten things. So I think that's a, a fun inversion of that trope. Absolutely. The next thing that happens is our heroes come back down from Mount Ordeals and the elder gives Cecil the myth graven blade, thus named because the legend of Mycidia is engraven upon the blade. The legend of Mycidia is what the elder uses to justify sending Cecil to Mount Ordeals. I think it's unclear whether or not the elder knew Cecil was going to change from a dark knight into a paladin. I am going to read the version from the Nintendo DS remake because though the Super Nintendo version is the one that holds a place in my heart, it is a bit awkward. Birthed from womb of dragon's maw and born unto the stars, by light and darkness cast aloft dream dreamtide o's resworn. Moon is swathed in everlight, ne'er again to no eclipse. Earth with hallowed bounty reconciled. Yet fleeting is the reverie when moon from shadow has aggressed, guided forth anew by light made manifest. Two bound by ties of blood, by time and fate, when rest apart unto lunar light and Gaian breast.
0: What do you suppose that means, Drew? It was all that lunar light stuff and all that Uh transformation of light. I mean, again, it's all in there, man. And I get prophecies and the language is a bit dense. And you're not expected to know what any of that really means other than understanding, obviously, that Cecil has just gone through his transformation from dark to light. But all that lunar stuff probably just sounded like fancy wording the first time you heard it.
1: Right, right. Two bound by ties of blood. I don't know what that means.
0: Right, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> the, a bloodline plot reveal to come later. Sure. So, yeah, it's that's one of the things I really do love about prophecies when done well, is that they allow you to foreshadow without giving away. And maybe it's some people see it as a cheap writing tactic. I think when you've got such quality themes and characterization and arcs and earned twists and things like that, you can afford to do a little bit of your foreshadowing through prophecy. And again, it's relatively common in sci-fi, in a word we're, we're going to learn really well in this podcast, or if not especially in the next episode of the podcast especially, is speculative fiction.
1: Right. And I do have a bit of problem with, with prophecies and foretellings and whatnot. I think it can be, as you say, kind of a, a cheap way out. In this case, I think it works fairly well, particularly because the Elder of Mycidia has one interpretation, and King Giat of the Dwarves, who we will meet shortly, has another interpretation. So the Elder of Mycidia believes that Cecil is the one who has been birthed from the Maw of the Dragon, he has cast his darkness aloft, and so on and so forth. That's why he justifies giving Cecil that myth-graven Blade after becoming the Paladin
0: yeah and i think that's one of the things as you just got to it's one i'll bring it up again where game of thrones succeeds is because they've got this big prophecy as well but a bunch of people interpreting it differently and it's been responsible for creating havoc like some of the worst actions done in that series have been in the name of trying to fulfill this prophecy which may not even really be a thing it may just be an old story that people are twisting and turning about and so I think it serves similarly here. Like, it can be some foreshadowing for the player, for the viewer of the story, but it's also a source of conflict within the story, which is what I think makes for a good prophecy in terms of storytelling and writing. At least helps, anyway.
1: (laughs) Cecil and his compatriots make their way to the Devil's Road. I think in the Super Nintendo version it was called The Serpent's Path. It's basically futuristic teleportation technology, and since Cecil is a paladin now, he can use it, and they get into, they're they're able to use it to infiltrate Baron. So they get to Baron, and they quickly find that Golbez has, of course, brainwashed the soldiers of Baron, and they make their way through the castle, and they, they run into our old friend Yang. But Yang has also been brainwashed by Golbez. So there's a it's fight the
0: second time that one of our former party members' teammates, brothers in arms, yes. has attacked us.
1: Yes. It doesn't take a lot to bring in to his senses though. All it takes is a quick fight. All you need to do to bring a monk around to his to his proper way of thinking is to fight him, I guess.
0: <laughs> Which does play into a little bit this question and this is one of those things that i've always found interesting in stories again often appearing in speculative fiction because where else are you going to have mind control but are certain people more akin to being taken advantage of in that way that's a question that'll be asked later in this game and even the two different ways we've seen kane as we said when we talked about young when we said what is his defining attribute among this cast of characters that he has his stuff together a lot more than the rest of these people. And I don't think that this is an accident or that this is... I think some people would even say this is an inconsistency. How come you just beat up Kane, or I'm sorry, you just beat up Young, and he's fine, but Kane, you know, you fight him and nothing happens. He's still under mind control. And I think there's a comment being made about which of those characters has their inner core, their inner strength more figured out at this time in their lives.
1: So the king of Baron is revealed to be the arch fiend of water, Cognazzo. It's not clear how long the king has been Cognazzo or, or how long Cognazzo has been standing in for the king? Certainly since they started since Baron started their conquest, but does that mean it was the Cognazzo who asked Cecil to take up the dark blade? Or, or was it actually the king of Baron? Was it Cognazzo who took in Cecil and Cain and the rest? Or was that actually Cognazzo? It's it's.
0: That's because... a great question for me to launch into a quick diatribe. Point of mind: This is purposeful ambiguity. This is not a plot hole. This is a loose end, and people get those things mixed up a lot. But it's never told to the viewer exactly when the changeover happened though it's heavily implied that at least the original attack that we saw at the very beginning of the game that was because Cognazzo was trying to obviously put this plan in place to get all the crystals but yeah I think that's kind of cool and interesting and it's one of the things again if I may jump way forward in the series and make a point if back in the day there had been DLC and you could do episode king of baron i would be very interested i think that could be an interesting side story to see how that happened and how you know whatever did happen to the original king of baron and i'd like to see some of their relationship with him and rosa and kane and cecil when they were kids we don't get any of that it's all heavily implied and that's also okay
1: apparently i we should have expanded our expanded universe episode to include more what dlc would you like to see? I and mean, we did that a little bit, but
0: it can yeah. continue to be an ongoing conversation because why not, right? And I think that's something that people mess up all the time. They say, "Well, this wasn't explained." Not everything has to be explained, right. and it's okay if it's interesting enough to go back later and explain it.
1: So our heroes fight Cognazzo. They defeat the elemental archfiend of water. They also fight. that kind of slimy dude who told on Cecil at the beginning of the story, who turns out to be a sort of demon in disguise. But uh, as they are leaving... That's one of those
0: pieces of catharsis that Final Fantasy often gives you that real life doesn't, is the guy who was the bully at school turns out to be like an (laughs) actual demon or, you know, whatever... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they like to give you that little piece of catharsis so that when you get to turn around and kill the guy who's been giving you a hard time the entire game, it's not just because, you know, he's a jerk. He's also a, a demon from hell. Right, right, <laughs> Or right. where, I don't know if there's hell in this game. The other thing that this whole scenario, of course, reminds me of, and we talked about it when we did three, is King August and then King Alis who came after him, and that whole situation with the the brainwashing is very similar deal going on here
1: so our heroes are preparing to leave baron they're reunited with sid because sid's got a new airship and they're on their way out when one of the most striking scenes from this game or any game happens cognazzo even though he's dead is is reaching from beyond the grave he has set them a death trap in this this sort of antechamber just before the exit of the castle. The doors slam shut and lock. There's no escape through them, and the walls begin to close in. And our heroes are pushing against the walls, trying to stop it. Our strongest members in Yang and Cecil aren't able to do anything. The walls continue to close. And Palam and Porum, these little children, look at each other and they know what they have to do. So they thank Cecil and and the rest for being their friends and for allowing them to come on this adventure. And they put their hands against the wall and they brace their feet and they cast stone. They petrify themselves as these stone statues, they are able to then stop the walls. And Tella and Sid and Cecil and Yang are beside themselves even tries to cast Asuna right he he tries to yeah. heal them of their petrification and it doesn't work and that's something that's been a critique i've heard sometimes of some of the storyline points of final fantasy you know what happened to all your phoenix down when delita's sister died right well here yeah. you know they try it and and i think the explanation is something like well they willed this themselves so it can't be undone and it's just heartbreaking
0: yeah Really heartbreaking scene. I was not expecting it. A little bit reminiscent of that scene of Final Fantasy II when Joseph is crushed by the boulder. A little bit reminiscent of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, in sure. the trash compactor. Yeah. But this is far more emotionally charged than either of those scenes because of this sacrifice from two innocent little kids who were... You know, we talked about Yang being centered... More than the rest of the cast that, you know, is kind of a Degrassi episode going, you know, <laughs> between all of them. But Palom and Porum were the humor, were the lightheartedness. They're always giving each other a hard time. They're, yeah, maybe a little stereotypically cliche brother-sister relationship, but there's also a reason that <laughs> that's a particular cliche and the, the magical element to them that also gave them this sense of wonder if if these wonder kids have this much power and this much joy you know what will they be capable of how will they be able to make the world a better place and that lost potential idea it's heartbreaking this scene still chokes me up even knowing and we'll go ahead and spoil this part now that we've gone on for a little while that it's not permanent still watching it chokes me up because they don't know that
1: right and and you were talking about Yang as a character who knows what he's about who's got a center Paul and Poram really do too for all that they're children they're not you know brooding in their rooms at night they're not questioning every choice they've ever ever made they they've got a pretty good idea who they are and that might change as they become teenagers who knows but for now they know exactly what they have to do in this moment and they don't question it they just do it they get it done
0: yeah powerful stuff
1: so with Pallum Emporum petrified the rest of our heroes escape the castle and Sid takes them to his newest bestest airship the Enterprise space the final frontier these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise its five year mission to explore strange new worlds To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Our heroes are soon attacked by Cain and the Red Wing Fleet.
0: Cain!
1: It's a bit of a parlay though. Because while Golbez has the crystal from Mycidia and the crystal from Damcyan and the crystal from Fabul, he still needs the crystal of Earth from Troya. So Cain offers to return Rosa to Cecil if he will retrieve the crystal of Earth. Otherwise, they're going to execute Rosa. Our heroes make their way to Troya. Troya is an interesting town. It's a matriarchy, and all the roles that would usually be filled by men are filled by women. And there's a council of eight women, the Council of Epopts, E-P-O-P-T-S. I don't know where that word comes from or if it means anything in real life. But they are the holders of the Earth Crystal, and when Cecil and company arrive to, to bargain for the Earth Crystal, they find out that it was stolen by... The Dark Elf. Not Astos this time.
0: No, yeah, different Dark Elf. But a lot of fun, little quick parallels to the previous games in succession here.
1: And in Troya, they find another one of our heroes who was lost in the shipwreck. Edward the Bard is here. He has been injured, he's being tended to by the people of Troya. Uh, he's still injured though, he cannot go with us to the cave of the Dark Elf, but he does give the party an item called the Whisperweed that he thinks will be useful to them because it will allow him to communicate with them. And what is a bard if they cannot communicate?
0: Indeed. It's also explained at this point that the Dark Elf has only one weakness, metal. And that is unfortunate for a knight who has become a paladin who wields swords and <laughs> <laughs> his group of mostly medieval type warriors. Now, you have yeah. done lots some of metal magic stuff throughout your journey, but your two best magic users just turned themselves to stone to save your life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you're presented with a bit of a pickle here. You've got to try to go so it's a place where gameplay and storyline overlap a little bit because the problem in the plot is reflected in the game you've got to try to go into this place and this dungeon and succeed with a different tactic probably than the one you've been playing with for most of the game because he's a little, you, I mean he's just not adept at using can he even use magic? But, yeah, when
1: he's a paladin he's got white magic
0: Yeah, okay, he's, got, so. he's got
1: some white magic Right, so the Lodestone Cavern uh, makes it so that metal is not usable. So our heroes make their way from Troya to the Lodestone Cavern, where the Dark Elf is hanging out with his newly won Earth Crystal. We make it all the way to the Dark Elf. It is, as you said, kind of a pain in the neck, because we can't use the same equipment we've been using, because if you use anything metal, your character is just paralyzed. And in the fight with the Dark Elf, Edward uses his capacity for song, his harp and his singing through the Whisperweed to sort of dispel the magnetic field because our, our heroes are getting their butts kicked by the Dark Elf. So Edward is still injured, and, and we've talked before about how Edward is seen as a coward, but he has to get up out of bed, still injured, and get his harp and play through the, through the Whisperweed even though it injures him further, even though it makes his condition worse. He's putting himself... At risk, even from afar, to help his friends.
0: Yeah, nice bit of character development for Edward there, showing strength both of a physical and a mental kind, which is nice. Even though you know, right before that, he was like, "No, I can't go with you to the dungeon," and "No, I can't fight in the battle." And so you're starting to think, "Man, is this guy just is this going to be his thing the whole game?" They set that up nicely, set up your expectations because he can't go with you. Ends up being the most important part of winning the fight has to do so from afar but has to sacrifice not not his life or anything but his his health (laughs) in order to do so
1: right right the next place we go is the tower of zot why it's the tower of zot why it's named that who zot is never brought up again but it is for the moment the the base of golbez and so our heroes after recovering the earth crystal because the trojans being so grateful that they recovered it allow Cecil and his party to borrow the Earth Crystal, to bargain for Rosa's life. So having that, they make their way to the Tower of Zot. It's this floating tower, you can only get to it from the airship, and then you can never see it again. So you get to the Tower of Zot, it's this sort of, there's like gears in the background, it's kind of a mechanical structure, but it's also clearly magical because it's flying with no aerodynamics. So it's a it's basically a pretty big dungeon. There are a few things here worth noting. This is the first appearance of the Mega Sisters. Cindy, Sandy, and Mindy. Yeah. They're a fun recurring set of characters. In the Final Fantasy X version, they're all insect themed, but in this one they're just wizards, basically, in, in robes and in, in Amano's distinct style. They have some combination attacks. They will do this thing where one of them will cast reflect on the other two. And then the other two will cast various elemental spells on themselves and bounce it back to the the heroes. So, when the heroes try to cast spells, they're just reflected. That's a fun bit of strategy to play with. After defeating the Mega Sisters, they make their way to the top of the tower, where they find Golbez and Rosa. Cecil straight up gives Golbez the Crystal of Earth, and Golbez goes back on his word. He refuses to return Rosa. Then the Tella... Yeah, I know. Bad guys, <laughs> honestly. Then Tella, furious for all the right reasons, and now empowered with the spell Meteor, leaps into battle against Golbez and casts his greatest spell, trying to avenge his daughter Anna. It's not that it doesn't do anything. It doesn't kill Golbez, but it does break Golbez's hold on Cain. That said, Golbez defeats the party and is preparing to kill Cecil when suddenly he can't bring himself to and he retreats. I wonder why that is. Yeah. This is Tella's last hurrah. There are a lot of almost deaths. We talked about Yang going overboard and then being found in Baron. We talked about Edward going overboard and then being found in Troya. Well, here, it looks like Tella's dying and that's because he is.
0: Yeah, so this is... Really of main party characters who spent a big chunk of the game as a member of your party. This really is the first death. There have been NPC deaths in some of the earlier games, but this is the first one of main cast. And because I think I'd been set up with the other ones to think he was going to come back, I kept expecting him to. And, you know, when it doesn't happen. So I'm not sure if it was less or more impactful because of that. By the time you realize, like, oh, no, he's he's not coming back. Yeah. That's it.
1: And it's... I mean, Joseph, as, as I talked about when we did the Final Fantasy II episode, like, that was a surprise when that boulder crushed him. Seeing Scott die in bed at the beginning of Final Fantasy II, you know, it wasn't that impactful. Minwoo dying was a bit much... But yeah, this is the first one that really. While I liked all those characters well enough, I was not as attached to them as I was attached to Tella. And yeah, this this hurts.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was kind of attached to Doga and Unai. Sure, but sure. Still, not not at this level. Not with Tella. And you also, he had kind of already experienced his tragedy, as we had talked right. about, and he had gone through this thing with Anna. And so, you kind of thought. He would get to avenge her at least, but he doesn't. He does not get to avenge her. He dies in his attempt, and right. there, it's left up to the rest of our heroes to avenge them both.
1: And we had sort of talked about how sometimes a, a character of advanced age, their next change is to die in A New Hope. Obi Wan Kenobi is basically there to be a mentor and then die so Luke can go on and do his thing. Unai and Doga also fulfilled a, a similar role. They were these already experienced characters. They'd already had their adventures. They were at the end of their stories. And it didn't really feel that way with Tella. It felt like there was still more for him to do. And I think that's what makes it harder. At the top of the tower, our heroes find Rosa. And she is bound underneath a giant metal ball that is going to crush her. Unless, unless it is a giant metal blade that's going to chop her head off. This is the difference between the North American version and the original version. I, for the longest time, thought, yeah, they were just going to crush her with this giant metal ball. Turns out, no, that was censored. Uh, it's, it's really meant to be a blade. It's a, Basically, she's, she's tied to a guillotine.
0: Yeah, That's pretty gruesome.
1: Yeah. They are able to free Rosa, and Kane now is also free, as we said, of Golbez's mind control. So with this party they they fight the archfiend of wind Barbarikia. This is uh, whereas in the original game it was the fire fiend who was the lone female fiend and in, in this case it's the the archfiend of wind who is the lone female fiend. Just to note it. And once they have defeated Barbarikia as our Archfiends thus far so have. Uh, In death they have one more thing they can do, uh, and Barbarikia's is to make the Tower of Zot collapse. So Rosa, with her white magic, has teleport, and teleports them back to Baron Castle. So Cain, now free of mind control and awfully remorseful, explains Golbez's plan. Golbez is seeking the crystals, including the four Dark Crystals, and this is the first mention of them, to open a way to the moon. Not sure why he wants to do that, but that's what he wants to do. So now that he's got the four crystals of the surface world, because remember we just gave him the earth crystal, he is now going to the underground where he's going to seek the four dark crystals. And again, these are not light and dark as in good and evil. It's light as in the surface world and dark as in the underworld. And it's not a an underworld as in the, the world of death. It's the underworld as in tunnels where the dwarves live.
0: Yeah, it's a literal subterranean area and this is fun because we love our paradigm shifts and we get to here as we kind of did in final fantasy 3 where they're like no you're one of many floating continents it's like no here there's not just the world you know and all these kingdoms who are fighting each other there's this subterranean level and did you say he's trying to go to the moon
1: yeah yeah the moon the moon we'll get back to that the moon is important in this i don't know if we've mentioned but there are two moons and they might be important to the
0: end of this game might play a role.
1: So Kane has an item that will open a way to the underground that he got from Golbez. So it's good we got him back on our side. The Enterprise takes our heroes to the underworld and right into the middle of a battle between the Red Wings and the Dwarves. And you might think, well, geez, the Dwarves seem awfully outclassed since the Red Wings have airship. Well, no, the Dwarves, the Dwarves have tanks.
0: Yeah, yeah. They have like advanced War, war level weaponry. <laughs> and 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 suddenly, because it's been made a very big deal. If you talk to a lot of the NPCs throughout this world, they're all talking about the military might of the Kingdom of Baron and the fleet of airships. It's been made a very big deal as it would be if you lived in what was mostly a medieval type of society, and all of a sudden, there were flying machines that would get everybody's attention. And now we're seeing flying machines. What the whatever we got cannons, we have tanks, we can we have like surface to air guns.
1: So because the Enterprise came into a fight right in the middle and weren't expecting it, they crash land near the Dwarven castle. And there they're able to take refuge. They meet with King Giat of the Dwarves, his daughter Luca, King Giat wants to use the enterprise to fight off the red wings but it's been damaged enough and also the heat of the underground there's a bit much for it it's going to get some mithril plating later to to make it able to fly over lava which is cool and giat assures them that though Golbez already has two of the dark crystals his crystal is safe but then then we come upon one of the creepiest musical themes ever in an early final fantasy because Princess Luca's dolls have been possessed. The Calcabrena. The Calcabrena, man. Yeesh.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. What a great... I don't. I don't even remember if the battle itself is great, but like you said, I will never forget that horrifying circus theme. We'll talk a lot <laughs> about it in the music episode, but definitely a memorable and creepy encounter and one of the first times we would see final fantasy attempt creepiness scariness haunting type of stuff They hadn't really gone that direction much and they don't do it that often but it's surprising how when they go there they tend to succeed and here is no exception even on the super nintendo this was haunting is the right word and that's exactly what they were going for
1: so once again Golbez shows up and kicks some butt and is prepared to take the crystal when who should return But your friend in mind, Rydia.
0: Rydia. This is a classic (laughs) return of a character. This is what people are going for. Some artists succeed. They don't always do it, even in this game. There are returns. there. Some of them are great. Some of them are not. When Rydia busts in, as an adult...
1: As an adult, when she fell overboard, when Leviathan attacked your ship several events ago... She was swallowed by Leviathan and taken to the Fey March, or the, I think it was called the, the City of Phantoms, or the City of Monsters in the Super Nintendo version. This is basically the realm of the Espers. Uh, it's, the, it's the other world. It's, the, it's a world attached to this one, but not quite. And it's where the uh, summoned monsters live, and Rydia's been living there and, and leveling up there, and she shows up and, and hands it to Golbez. He is, he's not expecting that. He does, however, manage to use the last of his power to take the crystal and get away.
0: So yeah, if the trumpets could have been blaring the whole thing, it's, you know, <laughs> she busts in and this guy who's been handing you your ass this whole game, in fact, who's been handing the whole world their collective asses this whole game, has seemed like an unstoppable force. Ridia just busts in the door blows him away completely changes the power dynamic it's such an aha moment it's awesome I love this part <laughs> if it wasn't clear,
1: so King Giat tells our heroes that the Tower of Babel which stretches from the underworld to the overworld and then is perhaps a way to the moon that that's where Golbez has the seven crystal discs that he has right now the four from the surface world and three from the underworld He says that the last crystal, the very last crystal, is safe in the sealed cave. That it takes a lot of power to get through, but the king suggests that what they need to do now is go to the Tower of Babel and recover the seven stolen crystals that Golbez has, and he will give them some cover with his dwarven tanks.
0: The Tower of Babel, likely a top five candidate in what's going to be our inevitable, I should say, my inevitable, top 10 towers of Final Fantasy list. That's right. We're getting granular up in here. <laughs> Alright, so our heroes go
1: to the Tower of Babel, obviously a biblical reference, an attempt to reclaim the crystals, but it doesn't work out so well. Tower of Babel, which is the headquarters of a character called Dr. Lugay, who we're not going to see a lot of, but he is going to have some, some consequential actions. They're able to defeat Dr. Lugay, but the Tower of Babel has a set of cannons in it that are powered up and and facing the Dwarven castle. So now, suddenly, our allies, the dwarves, are under bombardment. Our heroes are able to gain access to the control room of the super cannons, but they can't figure out how to stop it. So Yang, in a moment of self-sacrifice, yet again, because he already jumped over the, the edge of the ship trying to save Rydia, But here he is able to get everybody else out. He locks himself in the room. And then, presumably using his monk powers of having a peak physical body, is able to stop the cannons and destroy the controls. And then the room explodes. And Yang is presumably deceased.
0: Yeah. Though, again, would not stick. Would not take.
1: That's a pretty strong, presumably.
0: (laughs) A lot of sacrifice in this game man and we're not even close to done because there's another one coming right after this moment
1: our heroes are trying to get out of the room where the where the super cannons are controlled and Golbez collapses the bridge and our party falls but Sid in a newly reinforced enterprise with mithril sighting catches our characters and tries to get them out of the underworld. So Sid, while under bombardment by the Red Wings, flies us back to the the entrance or the, the cave between the surface world and the underworld and he's flying up to the entrance and they're being pursued by the Red Wings and it's kind of this narrow vertical tunnel and Sid Sid has an idea. Because he is a master engineer he knows all about grenades and he's fairly certain he can lock this tunnel at least for a while with a grenade, but he's gonna have to detonate it manually. So big bearded Sid, big papa bear Sid, leaps over the side of the Enterprise, bomb in hand, laughing maniacally.
0: And then you just see an explosion off in the distance, and man. And then the characters do what everyone would do, what the player does. I even recall vividly, however many years ago this was, you putting the controller down and us and you know, and they start doing the dialogue, but you sit there and they're on the airship and Rydia's just losing it. But everybody is, everyone's down because Yang's just died, presumably, Sid has just died, presumably, Tella has just died actually. Mm-hmm. And Palomemporum. the body count is ever rising, and it's like, man, you you think Again, you think Game of Thrones is bad. If all of these had just took, then this would have been the, maybe one of the bloodiest Final Fantasy games, if not the most, you know, the highest body count of any of the games in the series. But most of them do come back. Still memorable moments. And as you mentioned in your description there, the fact that Sid, again, one of the fun-loving, one of the more, you know, the quirky uncle characters, you put it at one point. For him to have to get serious and sacrifice his life or intend even to sacrifice his life for the greater good, for that greater threat. And we do know now that there's an even bigger plan at work here. And the more that becomes apparent, the more our characters are willing to recognize that it's not just their kingdom and it's not just their lives and it's not just their problems that are at stake. There's a bigger problem here.
1: All right, so back on the surface world, we're still trying to get these seven crystals back from Golbez, and he's still in the Tower of Babel. So we make our way to the Eblin Cave. the The kingdom of Eblin has largely been destroyed by the Archfiend of Fire, Rubricant. Rubricant is a cool Archfiend, and we'll get to that here in a bit. But he has also committed mass murder against this entire kingdom of Eblin, and the people who have survived have made their way to Eblin Cave, and that's important because there's a way from Eblin Cave to the Tower of Babel that's secret, except known to a few. So our heroes make their way there, and there they meet Prince Edge Geraldine. Edge is kind of a strange thing to name your kid, don't you think?
0: Turns and out his real name. Did they instruct him to cover his face as well because they're not very nice? <laughs> <or>? <laughs>
1: No, no, this
0: is the kingdom of ninjas. Ah. First of all, how cool is that? Why is that not more of a thing? Why are there not more games that have kingdoms entirely full of ninjas? <laughs> well, <I'm> just saying. <laughs> from
1: a historical perspective, ninjas tended to be fighting against the ruling class. Oh, and sure. from a purely practical perspective, if, if everybody is a secret ninja, then nobody's a secret ninja. Anyway, his real name is actually Edward, and I'm not sure if I know that because the game ever says so, or just because I've read the Final Fantasy wiki obsessively for years now.
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure either, but also, a couple interesting things about this character introduction. One, you've got two characters who are named Edward, though, as you pointed out, they don't call him that. They call him Edge. But secondly pretty late in the game to introduce a new main character they wouldn't do that often either before or after this introduce main characters after like several others have died <laughs> you know, right, a right. lot has happened as, as we've discussed before now and, and there's they still introduce... one to come right and, and they're both immediately compelling on a visual and intrigue level so, yeah, that's a pretty nifty trick to pull off, and, and not an easy one by any means.
1: They meet Edge as he is trying to defeat the Archfiend of Fire, and, and he has failed. He's a bit on edge, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> because you know, his kingdom has been destroyed and, and his parents have gone missing but he joins the party and we make our way to the Tower of Babel and there we find Edge's parents and they have been turned into monsters by that Dr. Lugai character I was talking about before and then we are forced to fight Edge's parents and that that's kind of gross but what makes it even harder is about halfway through the fight they remember who they are and they commit suicide
0: I mean dude that's intense stuff this game is heartbreaking i really think there there would be a way to tell this story in a rated r dark gritty kind of game of thrones type of fashion and scenes like this are are what i think about where i'm like yeah there's some of this stuff that's can be boiled down a little bit for kids and swashbuckling to find the crystals and save the world from the big bad guy in the dark evil armor but then there's like a lot of parent and child death yeah and (laughs) and this one being suicide and he said it was bad enough that you're being forced to fight them which is something we see in speculative fiction that being forced to fight a loved one because they're under the influence of whatever that's tough but then for it to make that turn as you said and they kill themselves ah, oh, crushing another moment in this game that's just soul-wrenching
1: edge blames rubricant for his parents death though rubricant assures the party he had nothing to do with turning them into monsters and he finds that kind of gross even so, uh, our characters attempt to fight Rubicant, but there's a trapdoor, and they fall for it, I suppose. <laughs> they, they fall for they the trapdoor. They fall through the trapdoor. Fortunately, they are saved by. Hang on a second. They're saved by Sid. Sid, it turns minute. out, <laughs> he was rescued by the dwarves, and there's this new airship they've got called the Falcon and it also has mithril plating so it can fly in the underground no problems. But once again our characters have failed to to go to the Tower of Babel and find Golbez and get the seven crystals. So they make their way back to the Dwarven Castle and King Giat says alright we have failed several times now obviously trying to collect those seven isn't gonna work we've got to get the eighth so we can make sure it's safe. So he gives them the key to the sealed cave to get the last crystal.
0: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at Weekly at gmail.com. Join us next time when we question Cecil's chauvinism, meet the Hummingways, and go to the moon.